Tuesdays, we go to David Farenthold, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times to get his briefing from Washington, D.C. And uh, one of the stories this week concerned a a case from Washington State that the uh, Supreme Court made a decision about uh, concerning conversion therapy. This is the idea that uh, people who are gay can be turned into heterosexuals uh, by getting counseling. Now, what exactly has the court decided here? Okay, I have to tell you, that is one I missed. I do not, I do not know what happened with that case. Okay, then I'll move on. As far as I know, the Washington State uh, law will stand. So uh, let's talk about the latest on Donald Trump, which is that he is trying to get a court ruling now that apparently holds him immune from prosecution. Well, that is, you know, he's always been making versions of this argument that basically anything he did as president makes him immune from prosecution, which is not in the law. Um, there was a Justice Department memo from a few years ago that said you couldn't ch- the Justice Department couldn't charge a sitting president with a crime. But there was, there's nothing in the Constitution or anywhere else that says what you do as president and your presidential duties makes you immune. Trump is arguing that he is, that that should be found that he is. And in particular, that what he did on January 6th, standing in front of the, the White House, encouraging people to go down to the Capitol, was part of his presidential duty somehow, that he was safeguarding the Constitution or something. And, and he was acting in that moment as the president, um, again, using this power that doesn't actually exist in the law. So partly he's asserting this because he might win. Partly he's asserting this because he wants to delay his trial on Jan- the January 6th charges until late in this year or past the election. So to call his bluff, the special counsel has asked the Supreme Court to rule directly on this issue hmm. and to rule soon. Uh, and so that's what happened yesterday. And the special counsel has that power. He, he's got like a, a like a hotline to the Supreme Court where they would have to take this case. Well, they don't have to. This is something that happens very rarely. Uh-huh. It's basically, the special counsel is saying, hey, we should skip all the intermediate steps of appeal uh, and just go straight to the Supreme Court. And you can only do that in cases where there's some sort of urgent national security matter. I mean, one example of that, I think, would be the um, the, the case in the late 2020 that went to the Supreme Court about whether Trump's bogus accusations about voter fraud could be used. Uh, to hold up the election. The thing that confused so, me about this is I, I grew up being taught that the great thing about America was that the the president is as subject to the laws as any one of us is in this country. And so he's saying that there is somewhere in the law exists an exception that says, well, because he's the president, if he violates his oath, that doesn't count. That's right. Uh, you know, because he's the president, basically anything he does would put, is, is not chargeable by the federal government, either at the time while he's president or later. Um, yeah, and again, there's nothing in the law that says that. But I think this is he imagines this. He's had so much luck as president, and since he was president, finding these sort of novel legal issues created by the fact that he was president, and then using them to drag cases out forever. So I think with the, what the Jack Smith, the special counsel, is trying to do is just short circuit that delay and take this up straight to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Okay. The uh, hearing involving those three college presidents that went uh, really badly for the the college presidents. Um, this uh, this seems to be a free speech issue. I mean, we all remember the you know how the ACLU went to bat for the the Nazi march in uh, Indiana many years ago. The idea being that no matter how offensive it is, as long as the demonstration is is peaceful, is not actively attacking anybody, you can say anything you want in this country. So right. has has that changed? Well, this is happening in the context of what's happened on college campuses. With this, they have actually really restricted speech in a way that is designed to make students feel sort of physically and emotionally safe. You know, there's safe spaces, mm-hmm. microaggressions. There's all kinds of punishment of speech that you could stand on the street corner and not get punished by the government. But private universities have said, you know, we have to do this to make it a safe environment at our, at our college. 
The problem with that is like that don't, that works well when everyone on campus agrees on what you know, the, the quote unquote bad speech is. But in this case, obviously, there's not an agreement even on a liberal college campus about what you can say about Israel, what you can say about Palestine, Muslims, Jews. Yeah. So, they, you know, they, they had restricted speech in a way that I think they didn't really even realize was restricting speech or wouldn't have called restricting speech. And now they're in a situation where, you know, that their campus is not in agreement about what speech should be restricted. Well, I mean, but again, this isn't something that is subject to discussion if we're talking about the First Amendment, or so I thought. And wasn't it, hasn't it been uh, Republicans who have demanded free speech for conservative professors who they claim are, are suffering discrimination when they, they teach anything that, uh, you know, the woke crowd doesn't like? That's right. And I guess that what they're saying here is that this is, you know, you've, you've made a rule, you have to apply it equally. And so, you know, you would never allow someone to stand up on campus and say, you know, genocide for, you know, black students, genocide for Hispanic students. And if you say it for about Jews, I guess in a theory, well, I was surprised by what they said in this hearing, but what this university president said was, well, well, that could be okay as long as depending on the context. Yeah. So uh, what, what do you think the fallout from this is, uh, is going to be? I mean, we've, we've had one resignation, and I know uh, Claudine Gay just got some support from her faculty at Harvard, so perhaps she will not resign. Is, is the idea then that, that we are, what, equal opportunity expulsion? So if you're going to expul- you're going to kick out a professor for uh, being too conservative, you can uh, kick out students because they join a, a protest and say something outrageous? Well, I, I, it would be interesting to see. I mean, you could see something like that, that they try to become more aggressive and draw, you know, be, have more restrictive speech policies, but then, you know, apply them in a way that protects, you know, speech against, you know, prohibits speech against Jewish students, too. Or you could see them, you know, what I sort of hope happens is that they re- retreat a little bit on this and be, you know, are less sort of the colleges are try to be the speech police less. You know, that there's less efforts to yeah. sort of restrict ideas that are not, you know, that are maybe perhaps un- make people uncomfortable, but don't physically threaten anyone or even call for physical harm to people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, shutdown update. That story sort of has been buried. So does that mean that we're nobody's really serious about uh, the the budget uh, deadline that's coming up? Or are we, uh, again, coasting to the edge of the cliff? Nobody seems that worried about it. it. You know, that is, I have to say, that's not really a barometer of whether it's going to happen or not. I've seen, seen things that people weren't worried about happen, right, blow up in their face. But I think that from the last shutdown threat that happened a few weeks ago, everybody sort of seems to think that Mike Johnson, the new speaker, realizes he'd be a political loser of a shutdown and so mm-hmm. that he will do whatever it takes to avoid that. And, that. You know, there may be some pressure on the Biden administration to agree to some cosmetic changes on the border, but uh, I don't think there'll be major changes from him, and I don't think there'll be a shutdown as a result. Good news. David Farenthal from the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. In the spirit of our 35th annual holiday magic campaign to support Treehouse for Foster Kids, we're bringing you their stories. Kyber News Radio's Kate Stone spoke with a young woman who says Treehouse came into her life when she needed it most. Five years ago, Alex Solario was 16 and in desperate need of help. Going in and out of foster homes, not really going to school, I had a failed adoption. She calls it one of the hardest moments she's ever had to go through. I felt hopeless. I felt like no one wanted me in their life. (laughs) So it was very hard and I had a really hard time 
I even attempted suicide at one point. It was right around then that she found Treehouse, Washington's leading organization providing essential support for children in foster care for the past 35 years. Her aid worker, Jamie, helped Alex get back on track. She helped me get some clothing, some shoes, some makeup, you know, things that made me feel like I belonged. Even as the COVID-19 pandemic shut down schools, Alex says she was determined to pull up her grades and graduate and says Jamie supported her through all of it. It was horrible because it was COVID. We had to do Zoom. We had to do like so many obstacles to get to that point. And she helped me through all of that. And she made me feel very welcomed. Alex also experienced homelessness during the pandemic. Her treehouse support helped her get a gift card so she could buy food, and staff members also helped her find other resources. Alex graduated in 2020. She believes all the support made it possible. There was times where I was very tempted to, you know, use substances and different things, and I just kept uh, talking to my treehouse supporters, and they helped a lot with that kind of stuff. She says one thing she's learned is to never give up, that everyone has their hard days and hard times, but to keep going. Things she says she's learned from both life and her treehouse family. I'm doing really well. Well now, I am no longer homeless and I have a full-time job as a preschool lead teacher and I'm very passionate about early education. Along with everything Treehouse does to support youth in foster care year-round, helping to provide a happy, normal holiday season is critically important. As a foster youth during the holidays, if you don't really have like family or good connected people, you don't feel loved during the holidays. Donations to Treehouse help the agency keep children in foster care like Alex focused on what's possible and that they can succeed in life. Treehouse always does their holiday magic and I felt very lucky and fortunate to have at least a gift to open up during Christmas time. A small donation can help Treehouse continue its tradition of giving. You can find the link on mynorthwest.com. Kate Stone, Cairo News Radio. Choke points. Let's go. It turns out the tolls on 405 and 167 just aren't doing the job. Too many of you are able to afford them. So plans to raise them will likely be approved this week. Here's Chris. You know, hitting that do-do-do-do when we reach the $10 max on the 405 Express toll lanes could become a thing of the past. By the way, that was a false alarm. That was just me. It's only $7 right now. I don't want you to get worried. Because I might have to wait until the price reaches $12 or even $15 before I pull out the kazoo. The Washington State Transportation Commission is expected to vote tomorrow to raise the rates to meet the current demand. The toll rates just aren't high enough to produce the goal of a 45-mile-an-hour trip 90% of the time during those peak tolling hours. And it's important to remember that the tolls here are designed to price people out of the lanes. The higher the price, the more the state hopes people opt to sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic because it costs too much to get a better trip. That's the idea. But $10 apparently isn't doing it. The goal, of course, is to give transit a 45-mile-an-hour trip 90% of the time. So it's time to raise the rates, according to the state. Something that hasn't been done on 167 in 15 years and in more than 8 years on 405 since the inception. So there are two options on the table. They're the same for both corridors. So let's look at 405 first. The minimum toll now, 75 cents. In both proposals, that minimum would go up to a dollar. The maximum today, as we know, is $10. It would go up to $12 in one plan, $15 in the second. For 167, minimum toll is 50 cents. It would go up to a dollar. 
in both proposals. The current max of $9 would go up to either 12 or 15 as well. Now, it's expected that one of these two plans will be approved tomorrow. Then the public gets about a month to weigh in on what they think about this. And then the new prices, if approved, would take effect in March. Now, I've been doing this for a while. Normally, that public comment, I'm not going to discount it because we want you to give what you said. But normally, when we've made it to this point, the decision's already been made. It's just a matter of whether it's going to be $12 or $15. And so, and this is also, if you think about it, Dave, in the grand scheme of things, we're moving towards 2025 when the entire system will have to be standardized because we'll have the new express toll lanes from rent, uh, Bellevue to Renton. We'll have 167 continued all the way down in the southbound direction down to Sumner. And then they're going to have a complete uniform toll thing i don't know what, what else to call it but at that System. point it's most likely to be segmented as we've talked before so there could be a max from linwood to bellevue mm-hmm. another max from bellevue to renton mm-hmm. and another max from renton to puyallup so it could be Ooh, that's expensive 50 bucks oh yeah to go from linwood all the way down to Puyallup. It wouldn't just be the one toll like it is now, and that's starting in 2025. Or it could be free if you don't use the toll lanes. That is also very true. Or if you're HOV. Well, or that is HOV, also right. true, but then going <laughs> forward in 2025, everybody, in order to claim that, will need a flex pass in their car. Oh, okay. Because that's the only way at that point you'll be able to know the flex pass, the one that oh. goes between flip between HOV and toll. I thought we were switching to the sticker. No, no, we're going the other way. Oh. 167 has the sticker now, but there's no way to declare if you're HOV or not. The only way they pay is you put if you're honest and put a sticker in. Because <laughs> uh, And right now they're saying the diversion rate on 167 from people who don't pay is, is like 80 percent i mean can you blame well, them no uh so yeah so that's i mean the the system is being overhauled as we point towards 2025 but these tolls would take effect in march yeah well i mean what product of any kind has had the same price for eight years or 15 years none nothing none and again i mean we've seen it with uh, the you know, costco the narrows yeah that's oh, true. good good call gotcha and other things <laughs> but yeah so, so i mean this is just the way we're going um and so the price is going to become a lot more expensive uh but yeah i would order my flex pass now and just start getting ready for 2025 because there'll probably be a run on them at the end Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien with Dave Ross and Chris Sullivan. Dave, you just got back from vacation in which you were visiting your uh, eldest grandchild. And you did a whole commentary about, wow, how much work it takes to raise a child because you were left to babysit. And and that was just 10 days. And that was, yeah, that was just 10 days and your head is spinning. And it's no wonder then, says Rachel Cohen of Vox, that millennial mothers, some of them, a lot of them, dread becoming parents. In fact, there is a declining birth rate in America at the same time. So we called up Rachel, who wrote this article for Vox, uh, pondering why is it that millennial women and and often men, too, just go, I don't know if parenthood is for me where it was expected in other generations. Uh, Rachel, really interesting observations. First, let's talk about the declining birth rate. What do you know about that? So. Birth rates have been declining across all racial and ethnic groups over the last decade, not evenly across every group, but everyone has been going down. Now, I am personally less concerned with this. That's not really something that I'm invested in addressing. I know some people really care about that. I mentioned that in my essay because I am interested in the idea of reproductive justice, that people who 
don't want to get pregnant should be able to not get pregnant. And then people who are interested in having children or curious about it should be able to do that as well. And I, and I'm, I think to the extent that people on that second half, people who are thinking about it, I think there are a lot of people who, um, don't feel like they can have kids even if they want to. And that, you know, may be one factor in, in why we're seeing fertility rates go down, although certainly not the only factor. And probably not the best argument to have a kid by explaining there's a declining birth rate. That's not going to move the needle. But what you do identify <laughs> right. are really important aspects of parenthood that may make it more difficult to make that decision. And, and one in particular I zeroed in on because I can sometimes be a part of this parent group is the being too honest about motherhood <laughs> group on social media, that there is a negative impact and influence being too honest about how hard it can be. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think the takeaway I want people to have is that we should stop being honest or that it was a bad thing that people are more honest. We definitely should continue to talk more openly and publicly about the challenges and what needs to get better. And I'm a reporter at Vox who covers challenges around family policy and childcare and things like that. But I think there has been this cost and consequence. And a lot of what I tried to bring out is why and how we stopped talking about the more positive things and what led to that. And I do feel like there has been this strong message sent out that you should only have kids if you're financially secure, but how there are so vanishingly few people today who consider themselves financially secure. And I don't think we really want to live in a world where we say only people who are really, really rich and not at all financially insecure should become parents. And and that is kind of the direction we've been going in. I think the problem is that the we have a lot of talk in this country about family values coming from politicians. But when it comes to supporting families uh, the way they do in Europe, for example. I hate to keep bringing that up, but I was so impressed by what I saw in places like uh, Finland and uh, and Norway, where you can have a career and still drop your kid off overnight at a daycare center run by professionals if you have a long day. And we have nothing approaching that in this country. Yeah, I think, I think there are movements to work on it. And, you know, I'm currently working on a story about Canada, which is um, you know, a pretty close neighbor. They are in year three of five of trying to implement a $10 a day childcare system. I think there's a lot that we can still do. Um, certainly the lack of supports is one reason why people feel they can't move forward. But I, I also think that we just want to be careful about the consequences of, of making people feel like they can't do something that's hard. Um, I think that a lot of people may still find a lot of worthwhile in that experience. And I think people who have those worthwhile positive things to say have not um, been as vocal of late because we're all trying to raise awareness about the challenges and what needs to change. And I think there's been a fear that if we talk about what's good and what's fun and even manageable or improving, then we'll somehow lower the temperature to get the kind of policies they have in Europe or that will no longer ha have the, enough pressure on our employers and the state or our partners to do more. Um, but I, I think we, you know, I say, I think we should have the courage to kind of allow for space to talk about what's good, even as we continue to aggressively organize for better conditions. Colleen's jaw just dropped a $10 daycare. Unhinged. It was I, $10 a day daycare. Are you kidding me? It's a smart political slogan. <laughs> well, how are they doing it? Uh, well, the, 
government is the federal government is basically giving a lot of um, subsidies to uh, provinces that if they opt in, then they have to lower their fees on families. The um, some of the provinces have already gotten down to an average of ten dollars a day. So for for lower income families, it can be even cheaper than ten dollars a day. Um, but in a lot of the provinces, they've already reduced their fees by half and they're going to continue dropping the next year. The challenge there, which is more like it's harder to find staff and create new spaces. But in terms of dropping parent fees, that's actually the easiest part they've found. Well, you can read the article for yourself, How Millennials Learn to Dread Motherhood. It was written by Rachel Cohen from Vox. Rachel, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. For the past two years, nonprofits in Indianapolis have received the call of a lifetime after a man instructed a friend to donate his life savings to charity. CBS's Steve Hartman has the story. Teacher's Treasures, a free store for educators who need school supplies. Executive Director Margaret Sheehan is still stunned at her good fortune. It was an act of amazing kindness. After someone called to offer her nonprofit more than a million dollars. To which I responded, I need to sit down. And it wasn't just her. For the past two years, across the city of Indianapolis, dozens of other nonprofits have gotten the same call. The first thing he said is, what would you do with a million dollars? We hovered above our own bodies, (laughs) thinking like, is this real? The man making the calls was attorney Dwayne Isaacs, and he says just about everyone had that same reaction. Some wouldn't even hear him out. Probably three or four different entities that lost out because they just didn't take my call. Lost out on a million dollars. Yeah. It was that unbelievable. Mm Mm-hmm. And you still haven't heard the most unbelievable part. The money isn't his. He's just the executor. The money belonged to a guy named Terry Kahn. Terry worked 30 years for the Veterans Administration. He had no immediate family, and most importantly... He just was unbelievably frugal. Everything was directed to charity. But Terry didn't specify what charity, so Duane called around to see who wanted it. And in the end, about a dozen nonprofits took his call and got a share of the $13 million estate. So, yeah, it's crazy. Including wow. $1.5 million for teachers' treasures, roughly double their annual budget. Forever changed because of his choice and how he lived. He's smiling someplace, there's no doubt about it, and he would be getting a kick out of this. Yes. If only because he just got a glowing obituary on CBS News. <laughs> And it didn't cost him a dime. Well, sometimes money does just fall from the sky. Yeah. Here at G. Scott is going to take us through the fine print of Shohei Otani's contract. Oh, man. My man is going to defer. It was a $700 million contract total, right? right? Huge. Huge. No doubt about it. But Shohei said, you know what? I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take $2 million a year. I'm making some money off with my endorsements and everything. That's going to be cool. So how about we do this? Let's defer my salary and make it $68 million a year starting in 2035. Right? That's what's going to happen. And 
Here's the interesting thing. There was another player, if you guys remember this, Bobby Bonilla, right? He was the baseball player years ago that deferred $6 million in salary. And he says, no, you know what I want? You don't have to pay me now. Just defer my money later in the future and then pay me $1 million a year for the next 25 years. That's how Bobby did his. Interesting enough, that contract ends in 2000. In 34. Uh, so right as that is ending, Shohei's is beginning. He gets the money so river. Is, so <laughs> I just, I'm curious, right? Like in baseball, this is something that has happened uh, before, obviously. Would you, I guess the question is this, is it smart to defer your money? And this is a conversation I was going to actually bring up on the show because I want to hear what some of the financial folks have to really say about this. Yeah. Is it wise to take your money now or is it wise to defer your money for Depends later? Depends on inflation, right? That's what I'm saying. Because we're, I never dreamed that you know a million dollars would be a reasonable house price back in you yeah. know 1978, yeah. and yeah. now it is. So who knows? Yeah. So and and this is this is an opportunity. I'm quite sure when that time comes, I'm sure that the uh, uh, Dodgers will then just say, okay, we'll just put it as part of the salary cap, but then we'll try to extend that. And so there will be ways for them to get around that. So it also goes to say that, and if you are a Mariner fan, which most of us are that are listening right now, you're probably thinking, huh? Well, why couldn't the Mariners do that yeah, right. for Shohei? I'll tell you why they couldn't do that. Shohei was never leaving L.A. He was always going to stay in L.A. LeBron is in L.A. All of these athletes now go to L.A. David Beckham is in L.A. You don't have to worry about flying or doing a meeting on Zoom or Teams, Colleen. You're in L.A. where the action is. That's where the money is. That's why Shohei was never going to leave to a smaller market. I'm not saying that Seattle's small, right. but, but compared, yeah. To, yeah, LA, compared to L.A., it's you're not the Hollywood of sports. <laughs> right. I, can't, I can't get over the $700 million. Like, why, you know, so many people rail on corporate greed and billionaires, why don't athletes catch that same heat? Who needs $700 million? Um, well, because the reason why they don't catch the heat is because the owners should be the one really catching the heat, right? So th- that, that, right? Just go- that just goes to show you, in baseball, where it's not even the most popular sport, no. they paid one player. $700 million. You know what it made me say? Me, I was talking to some players, current players that are in the NFL right now. How much money are these owners making? Oh, right? Yeah. Because if... <laughs> If a one, and how are they making it? <laughs> right? On the increase in the value $17 beers? Yeah. <laughs> no, those are that money goes to stadiums, doesn't it? It doesn't go to owners. Oh, 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 oh. So stadiums. I'm glad oh. you brought that up. If I'm not mistaken, they don't pay for the stadium. Oh, yeah, they don't pay for the stadium. You, you see the game? Hold on, I feel like I just uncovered something here. <laughs> Wait, you mean to tell me the people, we the people, pay for the stadium? Let's yeah. Not, let's not go back to that debate. That was painful. <laughs> see y'all. G Scott starting at nine on Kyrie News Radio. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. When the holidays roll around, the last thing you want to think about is sadness. But we always do. I'm not too surprised because, you know, holidays, you remember your childhood and we all have loved ones who pass away and we miss them. 
Sonia Whitaker is the director of the Healing Center here in Seattle, which is all about coping with losing someone you love. And so what, what is the holiday season like for your organization? Well, we're pretty busy. We have lots of regular clients, but the holidays tend to be a time when people really focus on on looking back and, and recognizing the losses that they've experienced. And it's a time of added sadness and trying to cope with the things that have changed in their life. How does someone know that the sadness, I think we all experience at least a little of it. When does it become too intense such that you need some support? Well, that varies from person to person. And I would say that everyone who has experienced a loss probably needs some support. I don't see grief as something that's outside the norm of human experience. It's it's something that we all experience. And, and getting some support during a time of grief is something that would be helpful for anyone. It is true that uh, grief can lead to, um, as other big changes in life can lead to, uh, other mental health issues such as depression or anxiety. And if that is the case, if somebody's experiencing that kind of thing, then they do need to seek some help from a mental health professional that can help them with those specific things. But that's really kind of outside of grief support. And I think it's important that everybody be open to the possibility of getting support at a time when they're grieving. So what services do you provide then this time of year? We have all year round, we have grief groups for adults who have lost their partner, for young adults who have lost anyone important, and for children who have lost anyone important in their lives. And we uh, really believe that grieving in in community is important, that hearing other people and having a, a chance to be heard by other people is the best way to heal from grief. So it's not one-on-one. I, I I imagine that there are people listening who are thinking, yikes, the last thing I want to do is talk with a bunch of strangers about, you know, what's happening to me personally, but address that reluctance, if you would. Yeah, it is certainly true that when I first talk to people, they're sometimes saying things like, I've never been in a group before. I don't know if it's going to be a good fit for me. But People come from all walks of life, um, all kinds of cultural backgrounds, all kinds of identity backgrounds. And when the one thing they have in common is that they've lost somebody very important to them, whether it's their partner or a parent, sibling, that brings them together in a way that is really hard to explain. It sort of transcends all the other things. And you hear yourself being reflected in the things that other people are saying, the the profound loss, um, the profound sadness, the anger sometimes, all those things. It, it brings people together in a way that's difficult to completely explain and becoming Open to others seems natural in this setting. So it works is what you're telling me. I think so. Absolutely. Because we're, we're certainly familiar with the stages of, of grief. And uh, I, I guess it goes easier for some people than for others, but it sounds like an ordeal. So is there, for somebody who is thinking in terms of participating in an experience like this, what's the timeline? Is this something that you can resolve in a week, a month? Does it take years? What are we talking about? I would say, first of all, grief is something that stays with us forever. The loss stays with us forever. So as long as you have memory of a person, you will have some element of grief over their passing. We really believe that there is no timeline to grief. So I would never say to someone that, oh, you'll feel better in a week or you'll feel better in a month. We 
watch people transform their lives in sometimes a few months and other people are with us for a couple of years, still finding benefit from sharing their grief experience with others. And so there is really no timeline for grief. Um, and while that may sound a little overwhelming because people want to hear that there's quick, quick uh, solve issues for problems, I would say that it's a journey. And what we need to do is to find a way to incorporate those memories and incorporate the loss into our lives versus uh, assuming it's going to get fixed. And I, I assume you do come out of it feeling happier than you felt going in. I think you come out of it feeling different, having a different appreciation for what you do have, um, mm -hmm. having a different appreciation for what the person meant to you. I think you look at relationships and and just the value and preciousness of life differently. The mechanics then of setting up something like this, uh, how rapid can the response be? If somebody is just, because I can certainly see where you don't realize how much you miss the person until you do something like, you know, put up a certain ornament on a tree that, that you know, they gave you with it. And then suddenly it's overwhelming and you can't stop it. So how, how quickly can you get help when that happens? So if you reach out to the healing center, which, which we can, we answer all intake requests um, over our website, mm -hmm. which is healingcenterseattle.org. We get back to people within a couple of days. We schedule intakes and you can be in a group uh, within a, a week or two, depending on when the group that you qualify for is scheduled. And our groups are free. And we just strongly believe that people who come to us, we want them to have the opportunity to participate and get help as soon as they can. So it's free. It is. Yeah. The Healing Center provides its services for free. Wow. HealingCenterSeattle.org. Uh, That's right. It's free. And so if you feel yourself overwhelmed, uh, you don't, you're not alone. There's a place you Correct. can go. Right. You are not alone. Sonia Whitaker, director of the Healing Center. Sonia, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.